0: here amongst us this morning have had to deal with that threat in your life, and you know that if you have been diagnosed with cancer or the possibility of having cancer, that that is something that if not treated, it will eventually become very harmful to you and eventually fatal to you, and so because of the nature of the disease, it is something that must be identified and targeted and dealt with and treated And it needs to be done so severely, quickly, and efficiently, because if not, then its very existence in your body could end the life and the health of your body. That is true in the physical realm with our bodies. It is also true in the spiritual realm. And it is that principle that is behind the instruction that we read a few moments ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul identified that man in the Corinthian church who was having relations with his father's wife. Such immorality, Paul says, it's not even heard of among the Gentiles, among the unbelievers. The pagans recognize that kind of immorality and step away from it. But you in the church, you're boasting about it. You're not only tolerating it, but they were celebrating it. And so Paul says there's that man amongst you who needs to be removed, needs to be kicked out. And he likens it to leaven in a lump of dough. A little bit of leaven infects the entire lump of dough. It doesn't just cause a little bulge in the dough, but it has its ramifications that spread out through the entire lump of dough. And so Paul says in verse 13, Remove the wicked man from your midst. It's true when it comes to immorality in the church. The principle holds when it comes to false teaching in the church. Whereas the church in Corinth had tolerated the immoral man, the church in Ephesus had tolerated the false teachers. And so Paul, after he is released from prison his first time, he lands back in Ephesus and he finds two men whom he said had made shipwreck of the faith, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And Paul says, I put them out. He kicked them out. And he says, I turned them over to Satan so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. These two false teachers had to be dealt with Because their teaching would infect the entire church, it would destroy the entire church and eventually suck the very life out of the church. In 2 Timothy, I think it's chapter 2, Paul identifies Hymenaeus and Philetus, two men whom he says their talk spreads like gangrene. It just infects the body and begins to spread. And these two men, Paul says to Timothy, need to be dealt with, Hymenaeus and Philetus. You've got to cut them off. You've got to get them out of the body before they infect everybody else in the body. And it was true in the early church as well with Ananias and Sapphira, whose account we looked at last week in Acts chapter 5. It's never pleasant to deal with false teaching in the body. It's never a pleasant thing to confront sin within the body. It's never enjoyable to deal with immorality and unrepentant, unconfessed, habitual sin within a congregation. It's never a pleasant thing to deal with any of that, but it must be done. And in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, that was a lie, it was a deception, it was a a, a sham that needed to be uncovered and exposed and dealt with because the church was in its cradle, it was in its infant stages. And that was a sin that had to be dealt with because Ananias's deception Threatened the health of the entire body. The fellowship, because fellowship and unity are based on trust. If you can't trust a man, you can't have fellowship with him or friendship or unity. And so that deception needed to be dealt with in order for the whole body to remain healthy. Maybe last week when we went through Ananias and Sapphira, for the very few of you that were here, maybe you picked up the similarities between Ananias and Achan in Joshua 7 and Joshua 8. Did you catch that? I'm going to assume that you know the story of Achan in Joshua 7 and 8. If you don't, then I would encourage you to go home this afternoon and read Joshua chapter 7 and chapter 8 and the story of Achan. Achan was to the early Israelites what Ananias was to the early church. And notice some of the similarities between their situations. The children of Israel had been called out of a kingdom of darkness, really, the Egyptian land. And they were on the brink of going in and doing what God had commanded them to do, which was to take over the promised land. And they had this inheritance that was waiting for them, and He gave them that commission. And so they stand on the brink of that. They've got one victory behind them, and they hit defeat at Ai. And it's all because of Achan's sin. And without the power and the presence of God amongst the people the task of taking the land was a daunting one, and it was impossible. They never would have been able to do it. Ananias is the same way. He's in the church. The church had been called out of darkness. And here you have this people of God whose task it is to spread the Gospel to every corner of the world. A daunting and terrible task without the power and the presence of God. And Ananias' sin threatened their ability to do that very thing. The similarities in their situations, their similarities even in what they did. They both kept back money. They both were overcome with the sin of greed. And they both used deceit and lies to cover it up. Both of them had their sin supernaturally revealed by God. God revealed the sin of Achan to Joshua. He revealed the sin of Ananias to Peter. Both men were judged swiftly, severely, and justly, just like that. And for both men, judgment meant death. And in both situations, after the sin had been dealt with, and the man, and in Ananias' case, the woman, had been removed from the presence of the people of God, the blessings flowed. And we're in Acts chapter 5, and I want you to turn there. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 16 this morning. Peter has just told us about, or Luke has just told us about how Peter dealt with Ananias' sin. And now as we move into Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, we're going to see that the death of Ananias had some positive effects on the church. Two of them, really, that Luke focuses on. First, it positively affected the purity of the church. And second, it positively affected the power of the church. Now we're going to read those verses, Acts chapter 5, verse 12 through 14. So follow along in your Bible. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And I don't want you to forget about verse 11, by the way, which says that great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Now verse 12, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Now, as you read through that, you're going to notice something. Those verses really don't flow too well. They seem to be kind of disjointed. You'll notice that Peter begins by talking about signs and wonders. He ends by talking about signs and wonders. But in between, between verses 12b and verse 14, there's sort of a parenthesis. And I've set those apart in my Bible. There were signs and, at the hands of the apostles, signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And then I just drew in a bracket because what occurs from that point to the end of verse 14 is sort of a parenthetical reference, if you will. And you'll notice if you read verse 12 and then you skip down to verse 15, it flows. Look at that. And the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, verse 15, to such an extent that they carried the sick out onto the streets and laid them on the cots and pallets. See how well that flows? Verse 12b through 1214 is sort of this parenthetical reference. He starts out with basically this subject. The signs and wonders that took place through the hands of the apostles. But hardly does Luke get one phrase into his discussion when he sort of interjects this multiverse, parenthetical idea of the purity of the church. I think he learned some writing techniques from the Apostle Paul. If you've ever read Paul, then you know that some of his parenthetical references can be almost a chapter long. That's kind of what Luke does here. He starts talking about signs and wonders, but then he begins immediately to tie in this idea of the purity of the church. And how he structures these verses is an indication to us that in Luke's mind there is a connection between the purity of the church and the power of the church. He wants to tell us about the power of the early church, particularly manifested through the apostles, but there's something that you and I have to understand. That is due to the fact that the church was pure. So we're going to take these verses in their logical sequence. We're going to begin with the purity of the church, and then we'll look at the power of the church. So we're going to begin in verse 12b, after talking to us about the hands of the apostles and the signs and the wonders, we're going to skip to his parenthesis on the purity of the church. They were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. I want you to notice the unity of the church mentioned once again. It's mentioned in chapter 1, it's mentioned in chapter 2, it's mentioned in chapter 4, and it's mentioned in chapter 5. Why does Luke tell us that the church was united, that they were of one accord in Solomon's portico? Why does he tell us that at this juncture, do you think? You know why that is? Swift judgment has just come in the house of God. Ananias and Sapphira have just been dealt with. And what Luke wants us to understand is that when sin was dealt with in the body, everybody didn't scatter. Everybody was together. And they continued to be together. The unity that Ananias' sin threatened still existed after Ananias was dealt with. You didn't have people in the body who said, I didn't think it was right for Peter to do that. I didn't think that was very compassionate of him to treat Sapphira like that. I'm going to go find a different church. I'm going to go find a church where people are more tolerant, more loving, and more compassionate toward believers, and then take off. You didn't have that happening. Why? Well, for one reason, there was only one church, and it was the one that was in Jerusalem. They didn't have a choice. But the second reason is because they understood that their unity and their fellowship and the integrity of that ministry was dependent upon the purity of the church, and Ananias and Sapphira had to be dealt with. And after they were dealt with, the people were of one accord in Solomon's portico. Something interesting about Solomon's portico, it was in the temple. And you may recognize instantly that it was the place where Peter preached his sermon in Acts chapter 3. It was the place where they all rushed together to gather around Peter and John after the cripple had been healed at the beautiful gate. And they all came together in Solomon's portico and there Peter delivered his address. It was there that the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees heard that talk about the resurrection and there they arrested him and put them in prison. And here, after Ananias and Sapphira have been dealt with, where do they go? Where does the church meet on a regular basis for worship and teaching? Solomon's portico. Now after the Sanhedrin told them, we forbid you to teach any more in this name, in the name of Jesus, Did Peter and John and the rest of the apostles take their teaching underground and say, okay, we'll just do it from house to house. We'll pass notes. Uh, We'll write uh, little notes to each other and do our teaching that way. No, they didn't do it. What did they do? They went right back under the nose of the Sanhedrin, right into the temple in the Sanhedrin's turf and territory, met in Solomon's portico and kept on doing it right out in the open in front of everybody, including the leaders that they had justified. What kind of boldness is that? That's where the church was at. They were of one accord in Solomon's portico, Luke says, But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. Remember verse 11? Great fear came on all those within the church and everybody who heard of it. So how do the unbelievers respond to Ananias and Sapphira's judgment? How do the unbelievers respond to this account in which this man who is deceived is judged by God and killed by God publicly in front of everybody for his, for his sin? Verse 13 tells us, none of the rest, that's a reference to unbelievers, none of the rest dared to associate with them, that is the church or with the believers. However, the people held them in high esteem. People didn't want to come to church. Unbelievers didn't feel comfortable in church. None of the rest of the unbelievers, the people who heard of this, fear came on them, and they did not quickly associate with Christians and with believers. They kind of kept their distance. Why would they keep their distance? Who wants to join a church in which sin is dealt with, right? Who wants to go there if you're half-hearted, hypocritical, love your sin and hate righteousness? Who wants to show up in the doors with the apostles? You never know if Peter's going to single you out, and then you got to start running. So nobody wants to associate with them. Everybody wants to keep their distance. Isn't that a terrible thing that the unsaved would feel uncomfortable in the church? Isn't that horrible? What was Peter doing? You don't draw in unsaved people if you start dealing with sin in monk midst of the church and people are encouraged to be righteous. How can you get the unbelievers through the doors that way? You don't. I don't think Peter cared about it, to be honest with you. I think he did what was right. He said, we're going to deal with sin. And they dealt with sin. And all the rest of the people did not quickly associate with the apostles and with the Christians. They did not quickly... Glom on to that movement. They thought it through. Listen, you hear the news reports the next day. Kootenai Community Church, guy just dropped right dead in front of everybody because he was in sin. And God judged him. You read that in a newspaper and you're a pagan? You think twice before you come to Kootenai Community Church, aren't you? Sure you are. Why? Because sin is being dealt with. Look at Verse 14. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Is that a contradiction? So so which is it? Did people keep their distance or were multitudes added? Yep. Both. The half-hearted, the hypocritical, the uncommitted, the people who thought that they could use God as their own means to an end, their own end, the people who looked at God like that and loved their sin and hated righteousness and just wanted to be part of a little religious club that sort of had the admiration of the people and got the leaders all up in an ire, those people stayed away. But there were genuine believers who hated their sin and wanted to be part of that fellowship. Why? Because sin was dealt with and everything was taken seriously. And the Lord, in spite of the fear that people had of those believers, added multitudes of men and women to their numbers. And notice that Luke has just given up counting. He started with 3,000 in chapter 2. He told us about 5,000 in chapter four, uh, 3. And now it's just multitudes. He just talks about multitudes. He's talking about thousands of people who are being added to their number. Now seeker, Peter's not very seeker-sensitive, is he? So the church is pure. The church is pure. Those who are coming in are what they're giving up their sin, they're repenting, they're confessing, and they're coming into the church and they're wholehearted, they're committed, they want to deal with their sin. They don't want to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church and one hand on their sin and one hand on Christ. They don't want that. Now, by men and women, by the multitudes who were added to their number, this whole idea of church discipline goes 180 degrees against all of the conventional wisdom of our day. When I say church discipline, I'm sure it kind of conjures up in your minds Salem witch hunt type of episodes, right? Where people's doors are being beaten down and the elders all want to see your checkbook and want to know where you're at and you need to keep a journal and we want to know what you read and what you watched and what you listened to and who you were with. And That's not the idea of church discipline. The idea of church discipline is not to kick people out of the church. The idea of church discipline is to keep people in the church but to keep them in pure. Do you understand the difference? We deal with sin not to just get rid of people. We deal with sin to keep people in, but to keep people in sanctified and walking with Christ and purified for the benefit of the whole body. But you don't want to do that today. Why? Because church discipline is vilified as being prudish and intolerant and unloving. And the practice of a patriarchal era long gone by, when you just don't deal with stuff like that, people won't come to a church that deals with sin. People won't come to a church that's committed to holiness and righteousness and truth. People won't do that today. People will keep their distance from that, we're told. And so we need to avoid talking about sin, avoid dealing with sin, avoid preaching on sin, in order that the world would feel comfortable within the doors of the church. Have you heard that philosophy? I uh, my, Our perspective is so limited to our lifespan and these very few years that we spend on the face of the earth. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes I look at what goes on in the name of Christianity out there and I uh, I just get depressed at what goes on. If, if you're sitting here this morning, you think it's easy to find a good church. You're deceived. It is not easy to find a good church. Just this week on KMBI... There was a a story that was done on a new church, and I think it's in the Spokane area, in Chicago, in the Chicago area. It's the hip-hop church. Now hip-hop, for those of you that are older than I am, is rap. Those are the people that whose bodies look like a pincushion, and they wear their pants down around their ankles like that, and they speak uh, in tongues. It's called eubonics, and you can't understand the word they say, and they listen to a music that just gyrates your mind and your ears, and it's just... Atrocious, but they have a hip hop church. And they don't call it a church, they call it the house. And they don't call them worship services. They call them parties. And the homie gets up and he raps about Jesus or some such thing from the pulpit. And as one person said who was interviewed in this program, I like hip hop and I like the church, and now I can have both. Isn't that wonderful? Don't hold your breath for sin to be dealt with in a church like that. It's not going to happen. We got a cowboy church, we got a movie star church where you're the star of the program, we've got a a hip hop church, we need a rhythm and blues church, we need a country western church, we need a reggae church, we need a rap church, and we need a heavy metal church, and where does the insanity stop? But this is what we get when we mollify ourselves or try and mold ourselves to the world in order to draw people into it. I read biographies in church history because it helps me to sort of put everything into perspective. And the more I read of church history, the more I find of this. As Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. I think things are dark now. And I've long since given up laughing at those people because I I can't laugh anymore. It just vexes me. It disturbs me deeply to see going on in our nation what's going on in the name of Christianity. And I've always gone by the motto that if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck and smells like a duck, it's a what? It's a duck. It's a duck. Well, what's going on in the name of Christianity does not walk like, talk like, sound like, believe like, or behave like the church. It doesn't look like the church. It's not the church. It's unrecognizable to those of us who read the New Testament and get a picture of what the church is to be. What goes on in the name of the church bears no resemblance whatsoever. And it's not the church. In reading biographies, I get sort of a a long-term perspective of things. I read a biography, Ian Murray's biography on uh, Jonathan Edwards. I found out that in the 1700s, just prior to the Great Awakening, Edwards was distraught over the situation of his church and over the situation of the church in New England, early 1700s prior to the Great Awakening. You know what he was battling against? The same tendencies, the same ways of thinking, the same false teaching that we see creeping up in our churches today. I was somewhat encouraged. Had I read a biography on Charles Spurgeon in the mid-1800s, guess what I found? Spurgeon held the line against and fought against the very things that threaten the life of the church today. And now I'm reading a biography, Ian Murray's two-big, two-volume work on Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And in the early 1920s, guess what he battled? The same tendencies that the church faces today. And the church in Wales was losing influence and power, and people in Martin Lloyd-Jones' time were saying, the answer to it is to become more like the world. People will not come to church if they're going to be preached at. They won't come to church if the church looks churchy. So we need to make the church not look so churchy and stop preaching. And so they advocated exchanging the sermon for an address. In our churches today, we call them talks exchange the sermon for an address. And the address should be light on biblical content and heavy on anecdotes and stories and personal illustrations and quotes from prophets. And we should have poems and things like that in order that people don't think they're being exposed to the Word. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said, No, that's not the answer. In one of his first sermons to his first church, he said this, The world expects the Christian to be different and looks to him for something different, and therein often shows an insight into life that regular churchgoers often lack. And the world today is laughing at the church, laughing at her attempts to be nice and to make people feel at home. My friends, if you feel at home in any church without believing in Christ as your personal Savior, then that church is no church at all, but a place of entertainment or a social club. For the truth of Christianity and the preaching of the gospel should make a church intolerable and uncomfortable to all except those who believe, and even they should go away feeling chastened and humble. Lloyd-Jones is right. Edwards fought it in the 1700s. Spurgeon fought it in the 1800s. Lloyd-Jones fought it in the early 1900s. And we got to hold the line today. Because in the early Dawn of the year 2000, we're dealing with the same things that the church has been dealing with for 300 years. Nothing new under the sun. How do we get off on that? We're talking about the purity of the church. And when the purity of the church is given up in order to draw in the world, you lack the power. Why? Because the church becomes impure. The death of Ananias and Sapphira in the early church positively affected two things. First one was the purity of the church. Not many people were added to their numbers, yet multitudes were added to their numbers. People kept their distance. They didn't quickly associate. But in spite of that fear, the Spirit of God was at work in the hearts of people to bring them in. If you want a powerful church, it has to be a pure church. And the answer to why does the church lack so much power in our country and in our time, it's not that we're too much unlike the world, it's that we're too much like the world. And when you get to be too much like the world, you lose your power and your influence. And the church mocks and laughs. And if you ever watch a, a pagan journalist, like Peter Jennings or one of these guys, do a report on one of these churches, like a hip hop church or something, you can see him sneering as they report that. The second thing that was positively affected was the power of the church. Back up to the beginning of verse 12. Luke says, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. Now that verse reads almost identical to chapter 2, verse 43. Flip back there, I want you to see that. Chapter 2, verse 43. After the day of Pentecost, after Peter's sermon and after people are brought into the church, Luke says in verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Chapter 5 verse 12, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place. Now why does Luke tell us the same thing in almost the same words in chapter 5 that he told us in chapter 2? Why does he do that? Is it because Luke can't remember what he told us in chapter 2? No, it's because Luke wants to make two points. The first is this, there were miracles going on and those miracles were directly connected to the purity that existed in the church. If Peter and the rest of the apostles had allowed the church to become a sin hole where deceit and hypocrisy and lies and unrepentant sin were constantly practiced amongst the people, if they had allowed that to happen, I can guarantee you we would not be reading about the power of the church. It had to be pure before it could be powerful. But the second reason that Luke gives us almost the same words is this. He wants us to notice a common element between the miracles that are mentioned in chapter 2 and the miracles that are mentioned in chapter 5. And the common element is this. It was through the hands of whom? The apostles. He mentions it twice. It's no mistake that Luke does not say it was at the hands of the entire church that signs and wonders were done. It's no mistake that Luke doesn't say miracles were happening and everybody was doing them. You see, the early church was not a miracle-working church. Listen, the early church was not a miracle-working church. The early church was a church with miracle-working apostles. There's a difference. It was at the hands of the apostles that signs and wonders were taking place. Uh, gifts of healing, signs and wonders, those miracles... Those things are indications of apostleship in the New Testament. They're sign gifts. The gift of miracles and the gift of healing was given to a number, a certain group of people for a specific purpose in a specific time. The time for that has passed, the purpose for that has been fulfilled, and the people who had them have died. And the gift of healing as it was given in the New Testament era is not operative today. It's not given today. It's a sign gift and it belonged distinctly and uniquely and solely to the apostles and those in some rare instances who were closely associated with the apostles ministry paul writing in 2 corinthians chapter 12 verse 12 said the signs of a true apostle were wrought among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles the signs of an apostle is what signs and wonders Paul's laying out his apostolic credentials in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he says, you want my credentials as an apostle? Do you want proof that I am an apostle of Christ? Here it is. I did signs and wonders in your midst. And those are the indications of true apostleship. Now, if everybody did signs and wonders, if there were miracle workers galore, then what do they indicate? Nothing. And Paul's whole argument falls apart. He says, you know I'm an apostle because of this reason. I perform signs and wonders in your midst. Hebrews chapter 2 says, How shall we ne- escape if we neglect so great a salvation? A salvation that was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard them, God also testifying by both signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. The author of Hebrews says, We heard of this salvation first from the Lord, then through the apostles whom God bore them witness and testified to them as His messengers, by giving them the ability to perform signs and wonders in our midst. It was at the hands of the apostles, signs and wonders. Uh, Verse 12 just tells us that. Verse 15 kind of gives us an indication of what was going on in the day. Look at that. To such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. That sounds kind of superstitious, doesn't it? That sounded mildly superstitious. The people were saying to themselves, if if we can only somehow get the sick person underneath Peter's shadow, and his shadow comes across him, he'll be healed. Uh, Luke doesn't indicate that the healings happened because of the shadow. I think they did because it seems he seems to have that idea within, as he writes it. He's telling us how Peter healed. The, the signs and the wonders happened to such an extent that people brought their sick friends and relatives out onto pallets and carts and laid them out on the street so that in the afternoon as Peter walked by, his shadow might just pass over them and they would be healed. Now is that superstition? I don't think it's any more superstitious than for the woman who had bleeding to just say to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. In Mark chapter 6. God can use a shadow. He can use spit and dirt. He can use a hem of a garment, he can just use the words as he did in Acts chapter 3, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, stand up and walk. He can use anything he wants. I think he used Peter's shadow. And that made him popular. Look what he says in verse 16. Also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. They were becoming immensely popular. In that day... There was a common belief in the eastern, eastern area in the ancient times that a person's shadow had powers. Either evil powers or good powers depending on the person. And people thought so highly of Peter and so highly of the apostles that they in their minds would even attribute power to his shadow. Thinking to themselves if we can get people under his shadow they'll be healed. That's how popular they were. And word began to spread. And here in chapter 5, we get this indication that the church now and the ministry and influence of the church is beginning to spread beyond the walls of the city of Jerusalem as people in the outlying areas hear of this. And certainly there are people who said, you know what, there was another miracle worker who was here just a couple years ago who was doing similar things. And guess what? He had crowds that followed him too. And so the people started coming from outside Jerusalem into the city to the apostles. And Luke says they were all healed. Contrary and opposite of what you see on those uh, charlatan stage shows of modern day false teachers who say they have the gift of healing where lines and lines of people remain in wheelchairs after the service. Everybody was being healed. That made them immensely popular. That's a good thing, isn't it? Well, yes and no. And I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves this morning, but look at verse 17. But, oh, that's terrifying. The high priest rose up along with all of his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. Verses 12 through 16 is giving us sort of a transition into this next encounter that they're going to have with the religious leaders. They were immensely popular, but the Sadducees hated them. And now they're jealous. Why? Why? Because Peter and the apostles are far more popular than they are. People are flocking to see them. And the priests' little services inside the temple are going almost unnoticed. And they don't like that. And that's unfortunate, but that's the way life is. For every person who admires you and respects you, you're going to have somebody who was waiting in the shadows to throw a knife at you. And that's the way it is. They were admired and popular amongst the people. But they were hated by another group of people. Now where does the rubber meet the road for us in this? Let's just draw it down to this one thing you and I are deceived if we think that our sin is a personal matter it's not we're deceived if we think that our sin, what we do privately does not affect the entire body and everybody in it, that's a lie it's not true that I can do whatever I want and live however I want and then come here on Sunday morning and be involved in a ministry and expect the blessing of God and have it not affect you it doesn't work that way Achan's sin affected the entire nation of Israel, and they suffered defeat. Ananias' sin threatened the entire life of the church. That's why God dealt with it so swiftly and so completely. And my sin and your sin affects not just ourselves. It affects everybody that's sitting around you and every ministry that this church is involved in. And listen, friends, if you and I think... If I think that I can traffic in sin Monday through Saturday and then come here and preach or have a ministry in this church and that it won't affect you and that it will not affect the blessing of God, I've been deceived. And if you think likewise, you've been deceived. And if you think you can traffic in sin Monday through Thursday and then come to Awana on Friday nights and have part in that ministry and expect the blessing of God, forget it. It doesn't work that way. You cannot expect the blessing of God on something that you do because your heart is impure. God told the prophet Haggai. He spoke through Haggai and and spoke to the priests and those who were building the temple in Haggai's day. And he said, what you're doing is right, what you're doing is obedience, but there's a problem. The priests are impure, and those who are doing the work have not purified themselves. And because they are impure everything they touch is impure as well. And the people could rightly say, but what we're doing is so honoring to you. What we're doing is right. You've commanded us to build the temple. The timing is right. We've been commissioned to do it. And so here we are doing what you've asked us to do, and it's a good thing. It was a good thing. They were obeying the Lord and doing it, but there was a problem. They had not first purified themselves before they did the right thing. And Haggai said, what you touch is impure in the sight of God because you have not first purified yourselves. And because you're not pure, what you do is impure. That applies to Sunday school. It applies to Awana. It applies to women's ministry. It applies to everything you do and touch. It's important, friends, that if you and I are going to have the power, we've got to first have the purity in our personal life, in our personal walk, in our personal holiness before God. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, and prepared for every good work. He will be sanctified, useful to the master, and prepared for every good work if he cleanses himself from all of these youthful lusts. Friends, you and I cannot have power in ministry, in our church, in our witness, or in our walk until we first purify ourselves, till we first make ourselves a pure vessel. Then we can expect the power, not only in our own ministries, but also in our church. And so I ask you this morning, are you a vessel that is fit for the Master's use, set apart, and ready for every good deed? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and how it sanctifies us. We thank you once again that Christ has set apart his church and that He is sanctifying us and cleansing us and washing us with the water of the Word to present to Himself a bride, pure and spotless without wrinkle. We thank You that You chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to live holy and blameless before You in love. And Father, we long for that purity, we long for that holiness, and I would desire, God, that You would work in our hearts to demonstrate and show to us those areas and those things that need to be dealt with before You, before we can presume to minister in a wana or Sunday school or any such thing, we need to first make sure that the vessel is pure so that the vessel can be filled with you and that we could demonstrate your power. We thank you for that truth. We thank you for that possibility and that grace. And we pray that you would work that in our hearts here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.